From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. We cook from intuition and guts. There is no recipes to follow or, or like books. Like it's tradition and heritage and learning from grandma to grandma. And this is how I learn how to cook. Yeah. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Anat Admoni, a chef, a restaurateur, a cookbook author, a stand-up comic. Anat is a little bit of everything. She spent two decades cooking in New York City, including at the helm of her several restaurants like Balabusta. Now, Balabusta, that's a term she uses often. It's also the title of her first cookbook, and it means essentially perfect housewife in Yiddish. But before she became the self-proclaimed ultimate Balabusta, Anat worked as a cook in the Israeli army and meandered around Germany living out of a bus. Now Anat has published her second cookbook, Shuk, From Market to Table, The Heart of Israeli Home Cooking. Inspired by the Israeli shuks or markets, Shuk is a look at the vibrant and bursting recipes that make up modern Israeli cooking. In today's show, we're talking with Anat about how she stumbled into cooking and found her calling in the culinary arts, the role that food has played in her life from an early age, and how she continues to innovate in her food and push herself, like when she decided to try stand-up comedy. Plus, as always, we're playing a game. And of course, we've got recipes from Shuk for you to make in your home kitchen. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Anat Admoni joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Anat. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, we're glad to have you. <laughs> and we're here to talk about your, this is your second cookbook, actually, Shuk. Yeah. Uh, your first cook, Balabusta. But we'll, we'll get back to cookbooks, uh, in a bit, your cookbooks and your influences. But I want to start by talking about you and your life and what Love it. brought you <laughs> to where you are today. Awesome. <laughs> so let's start with the dedication of your book. Actually, you dedicate Shuk to your parents and you mm-hmm. say whose cultures informed all of my cooking. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and your parents and the role that they and their cultures played in shaping how you approach food today? Sure. So actually, I want to just dedicate it to my dad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he passed away four years ago okay. and uh, I didn't want to insult my mom or wait for her to die. So I said, I'm going to just <laughs> dedicate for both. Sure. Um, my mom uh, born in uh, Iran and moved to Israel when she was 10 and my dad born in Israel. Okay. And they met over there. I grew up with a lot of Iranian food, Yamanite food. Okay. That's my dad heritage. And also my mom, all her upbringing, all the teenager, she was living in an Iraqi home. So I have a lot of that cuisine as well. The way I grew up, it's kind of, it's so funny. I have two kids, two kids of my own now. Right. So once in a while I look at them and said, Oh my God, they got it so good. Like when I was the age, you know, I used to screen rice, uh-huh. kilos of rice, uh-huh. which for every holiday or every Shabbat, all I used to do is for Thursday and Friday, just clean, organize and cook and help my mom prepare all the meals. And it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be later on. <laughs> it was kind of a slavery. Well, what age were you when you started doing this in the kitchen? I think the minute I could walk <laughs> okay. and stop cruising, she said, okay, you're ready. <laughs> yeah. 
but you were definitely involved in the kitchen very early on. You also had a neighbor who you mentioned often yeah. who was uh, Moroccan. Who yeah, Tova. A lot. Okay, and you Tova. Would... That's mean goodness. It's okay. a great name. She wasn't so yeah. good to me. Um, no, she was. She's like my second mom. I just went to Israel last month and saw her. She's 93 now. And she said, you know, you always been like my kid. Uh-huh. And it's true. She have just only son and, and we were a family, you know, and in Israel, the, the, I think it's like a Midwest here. It's not like New York or a big urban, you know, like a big cities. Uh-huh. The apartment is always open. You go in and out. I used to open the fridge, take whatever I need, go back to my mom's house. So it's very, Tova was like my second mom for, for, for good or worse, but she was there. She taught me a lot about Moroccan food. Um, which got very close to my heart later on in life. And you'd cook with her often, right? Like you'd cook couscous yeah. with her. And- yeah. I, I, the first time I watched how they, you know, like kind of pass the couscous in the sieve and the kishkash, I was like, wow. I was standing on a stool. I was my maybe seven or eight years old. And I was standing on a stool just like, wow, this is Niger seed dropping, you know, visually right. it's beautiful. Right. You make a point to mention that your father was the one who did the shopping. Why did you think that was important to note? Um, and what because impact did that have on you as a kid? Mostly because in this culture, especially if you come from Sephardic or Mizrahi home, like mine, the men are not used to do anything. Uh-huh. They wake up in the morning, the wife will put the slippers right next so they don't need to walk, for God's sake, bare feet for a second. <laughs> uh they would do nothing. The the mom will cook. She arrange any to support, bring some money. But that's usually back back then was you know different time. And yeah. my dad was super advanced. I think also because he born in Israel in Tel Aviv, he was much more advanced. He, he lived later on in a kibbutz. His friends was much more diverse than just one culture. So. I don't know. He he was do a lot, not just the cooking. He would do the laundry. He would help her to clean. He would get her to get ready to Shabbat. He wasn't uh, the only two things he would cook is is special, iconic schug sauce that he used to do. Okay, and shakshuka, uh-huh. which I hate as a kid because the way he used to do shakshuka he used to mix the white and and the egg white and the egg yolk together because my older sister. Didn't like egg white and he wanted to eat shakshuka. It's uh-huh. healthy. You know, you have tomato right. and, and vegetable and eggs. So it's just look like, I don't want to say it here, but it's <laughs> look like vomit and yeah. it's not very tempting. You don't see the red sauce and then the egg on top. It's all like mixed together and it's like. So it's not nestle. He wouldn't nestle it in the tomato sauce. No. It would mix all the way it into will, the tomato it will sauce. Put, it will do the sauce. It will cook it very well. Uh-huh. And right before, just open the eggs. You will take the eggs and mix everything together. And it doesn't look good. And yeah. for years, I hate shakshuka. And then later on, when I figure out, that's not how you do shakshuka. I realized how delicious is that. And I start develop a lot of different recipes for it. Sure. And your dad would take you shopping with you then when he would yeah. go to the shuk. And what, what was that like as a kid? I mean, you were spending some time in the kitchen, spending time at the market. My dad was much a lot of fun. I could talk to him. Oh, he also was a very famous athlete in Tel Aviv. So when we walk in the street, it's like a famous, when I was young and when people his age was still alive. So, okay. um, they will call his name every once in a while. He will know people. He will hack people. He was super vibrant, popular. It was very nice to see as a kid. I look, I really look up for him and 
Then he used to go back to Shuka Carmel, which is in the center of Tel Aviv, and mostly because he grew up next to it. We already lived in maybe 15 minutes away. We have our own market, but he always go, go back to Shuka Carmel because over there we have the Yemenite quarters okay. and he could get his favorite soup and all the sauces and all this special bread he used to love. So he, a lot of time used to take me to Shuka Carmel to do the shopping. And, and you saw the joy that that brought him, obviously. Even though he born in Israel, he have a very strong connection to his heritage. He'd love, like, we would not have one Friday night with house with, without Yemenite soup, ever. Oh. Yeah. So there is certain things that we'll always, and in Passover, we'll have the fatut, which is like a broken matzah in, inside the soup, and the chilbe, which is the fenugreek uh, sauce, and on Shabbat morning, Saturday morning, we'll have kubane bread. So this is the things that was super important, and I think... I don't know if we have a contract with my mom before they got married, <laughs> but definitely she will learn everything. So that was part of our meals, you know, Okay. during yeah. the weekend. Yeah. Now, then you turn 18 and you begin your service. A few years ago, few, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> begin your service <laughs> in the armed forces, right? So you start as a driver, is that right? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> so funny. Last cookbook they did about women, they wrote I was a pilot. I'm like, oh, my God, oh. no. <laughs> uh, I was a driver. Uh-huh. So back in the days, and I'm old now almost, uh, but back in the days, women had mostly one job is secretaries. Okay. Uh, it's funny today, there is no name secretaries. There is million other description. Uh-huh. Like there is no more assistant. There is executive this, and there is like a lot of different. So same right. things happen in a, in a military. There is no secretaries, but back then it was just that. So most of the female, that's what they would do. They will serve a guy some coffee and he will organize his day. And I said, I cannot do that. I'm <laughs> too much of a feminist to work for some at least one, maybe a few, few others. And uh-huh. anyway, I went to Air Force and I asked to be a driver because I have a driver licenses and I got to actually the base and the unit I really wanted. And it was super fun. And I think they realized I can cook very fast and they start slowly shift me from the car to the kitchen. And I start doing a lot of big meals for generals. And it was the Gulf War back then. And uh-huh. It was a lot of like meeting and, and I will be responsible to do all these meals. Yeah. And is that the moment that you realized that maybe food was something that you could do professionally would, could maybe be a career for you? Or? It's, it's around that time. I okay. think when I was already 16 and friends coming, I think there is one strong things with me and it starts very early. I don't know where it's come from, but when somebody, no matter who, even somebody I don't like, there is few like that. Will say I'm hungry and uh-huh. that's it. Maybe because I'm sympathized with that because when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and I know the feeling of being like, so every time I would hear somebody said, Oh, I'm starving. My, I would, will prepare something everywhere I've been. I lived in Germany for many years. I live in, I live in Europe for years and, and everywhere in the military, everywhere I hear somebody hungry, I would make something. Yeah. And I will create something from nothing. I will, I will pick up from the pantry like you know and create something you mentioned germany i think you were living you lived in an rv and traveled around germany and you were was this what the type of you were cooking you were doing at the time then you imagine what is to cook in rv for four years uh Uh, basically you're going to aldi now we have aldi here or any kind of big grocery and it's a lot of cans 
uh-huh. uh, not a lot of produce, but some, uh, especially I'm Israeli, so we eat a lot of vegetable. Mm-hmm. Um, and all my friends was other street sellers and gypsies, so we will create together. I will make the meals everywhere I go. Yeah. And then eventually you come to New York yes. in, in the 90s. And I think you originally planned to come just to do... Three months. Three months. A three months I said I'm going to come job. do some training, some stage uh-huh. in some of the high-end restaurant and uh, get some experience in a few months and get back to Israel. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, what and made I you s- stay? I, s- I, s- I don't know. Um, I came with my first husband. Actually, I, he was my boyfriend back then. Uh-huh. And we came together to New York and we slowly find jobs and, and stay for almost four years. And you've been here ever since? No, the story get much more confusing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went back to Israel to get married and three after, months okay. after I got divorced and then I got back here. Okay. And at some point you went to culinary school as well? Before, right after Germany, before New York. Okay. Before you came to New York. And, yes. And when did you decide or how did you decide that culinary school is the because right Because I realized I, I, right after I finished military, I said, okay, now my parents start like pushing and put pressure to go to college uh-huh. and do university and get education. And I realized that this will be super tough. There is not one thing I want to study. And I cannot sit for four years just to have a degree. Um, that's not me. So I decided to go, show them off. I'm smart. Bring all A, A grades. That's what I did. Right. All A grades in every subject. Okay. Prove them. I'm, I'm kind of smart. If I really want, I can, but I don't. Yeah. I'd rather do something else, more creative. Right. So I think after, when I was in Germany, I said, okay, what is next? What I do? You know, I'm already 25. This is time to choose. And, and then it just came up. I said, like, there is one thing I'm not getting bored because I'm super impulsive. I like a lot of different things. I, 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 I like fashion. I like to sew things. I, I, I'm very creative. I do tons of other stuff. Uh-huh. And I said, that's the only things I can do in my life that I never get bored. Since I'm very young, that's something that always put me in a different state of mind, kind of a zen. I like to be in the kitchen. Maybe I should take it a little bit like step further and go to culinary school. And then I went back to Israel and went to study. Okay. And when did you open your first restaurant? So I opened Taim in 2005 with my husband, Stefan. Okay. And you now have a number of restaurants, including Balabusta, which is also the name of your first cookbook. We have eight restaurants. Eight restaurants. Okay. How has that been different running restaurants of your own after you spent many years working for other restaurateurs and chefs? I think there is something very specific with me because I'm an owner and a restaurateur, but I'm also a chef, which the people that work with me, it's easier for them. I'm not just a business guy that opened a restaurant and don't understand the creative part, the mm-hmm. difficult of hours, the stress. I've been there. I did it for years and years and years. So I'm much more related to the people I'm working with and I understand them a little bit better. And the first place we opened is was Taim in 2005. It was tiny, a hole in a wall in West Village with only five seats. There is a huge difference between owning a place. I think it's, I always want to improve. I'm super competitive and always want to prove that I'm great. So I was a great employer as employees as well mm-hmm. during these years. I always want to show I'm really good. I always push myself to get and pr- get promoted and 
yeah, it's, it's today it's New York getting really, really hard to run a restaurant. I think in most cases I'm hearing people that sometimes it's, you know, they're making more money as an employee, as an owner. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there is a huge, huge difference. There is much more headache as running a place than just, you know. Yeah. And Taim is often credited as having the best falafel in New York. Um, what do you mean in New York? Or everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So what is your secret to falafel? What makes your falafel so incredible? Do you have a secret? Secret? I, first, I don't have any secrets. Okay. <laughs> None. Um, and definitely not in food. I don't believe in secret in uh-huh. food. I will always give recipe. Any customer ever asks me a recipe, I will email him a recipe. Yeah. With the falafel, I think one is make it really nice and tender inside and super crispy out is the way we grind it. It's okay. everybody can make the, every recipe will, you will search for falafel have basically the same thing. Uh-huh. So chickpea overnight. For us, it's important that it will be super cold water in the fridge, not outside, then dried very well. So you not have a lot of water. And then you have this onion, garlic, coriander, cumin, salt, mm-hmm. pepper, right. and then herbs or not. It right. depends of what you want to do. So basically almost in most of recipe, you will have the same ingredients. But I think for us was the idea, you know, I worked three months to create this falafel. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, it re- took that me. specific recipe. Yeah, because my mom used to make falafel when we, when we were young uh-huh. and she's good. And then my uh, ex as well used to have uh, ideas for falafel. So I kind of collaborate all the things I heard and tasted before and want to create something that have it's gluten free and don't have any baking soda it's another important okay. thing for me especially because when i was young i hate falafel it used to give me as a kid used to give me heartburns and i'm like i don't want that what created heartburn is that a bad oil is that right so i did a lot a lot a lot of research and we created falafel that have it's gluten free with no baking soda or baking powder whatever is that right and a lot of greens and herbs and it's super beautiful green yeah awesome we'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Aina Edmoni author of Shuk from Market to Table the heart of Israeli home cooking every Tuesday on Salt and Spine we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Alison Roman to today's guest Aina Edmoni Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors plus we publish delicious and exclusive recipes hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you host incredible live shows and so much more salt and spine truly brings cookbooks to life and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you you can join the salt and spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just two dollars a month find out more and join the salt and spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine and now back to our conversation with anat edmoni author of shuk you also are credited with baby being one of the first people to bring Sabich to the U.S. Was that fair? Yeah. Can we yeah. talk about Sabich? We've talked about it in other episodes, like we had Michael Salmanov on and we talked about it then, but it's an Iraqi sandwich. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what it is and, yeah. and and how you decided to implement it or to bring it to so, your restaurant menu? So I grew up next to the original Sabich in Israel, in Ramat okay. Gan. So every time, and it's on the way to the airport in Ben Gurion. So every time we get a, out of the house to pick up, back then you used to pick up 
family from the airport, you right. know. It's not like today. No. Take a Uber, man. <laughs> I know. We used to pick up people and everybody, when somebody's going, it's like a whole, it was so funny now when I'm thinking about it. Everybody going with, so if my cousin goes, so there is 20 people like going with him right. to the airport, right. like, oh, goodbye, he's uh-huh. going to America. Yes. So on a way, we used to stop at Sabih in Negba. It's in Ramad Gan. It's where I grew up. Okay. And I used to, I love that also because I grew up with Amba. My mom always right. have Amba in the fridge because as she was a, a, a Iranian, she still lived in a Iraqi home for like maybe 10 years, eight years of her life. Okay. So I was super connected to Amba. I love the combination of the egg and the eggplant. And it was very natural that when I opened Taim, the first things I'm doing after the falafel, it will be Sabih. Yeah. And it's so funny because right after I opened Taim, maybe a year after we started getting a lot of articles, and one of them was a Sabih story. That was the first time somebody wrote about a place I have and mm-hmm. uh, the dish and not even about, uh, it was New York Magazine, not even about the falafel, about the sabich. And I had like owners of other restaurants coming to me and said, oh, this is, sounds so amazing. Can I make it? I'm like, it's not mine. You can make whatever. Let me give <laughs> <Right>. you a recipe. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was so funny. I never saw sabich before in New York. Uh, actually anywhere else. I'm sure it was, yeah. you know, I don't like, you know, people always said, Oh, you bring, it's so hard to take credit for something like that. Uh huh. But yeah, Sabih is my favorite sandwich. I have to say, yeah, if I'm getting inside the aim, I'm going always to do food control and I'm getting inside the aim. I'm all, I, I'm always like, I'm getting Sabih, not falafel. And I love falafel, but I'm getting Sabih. Yeah. It's yeah. the best thing ever. Preference. Yeah. So your latest cookbook is called Shuk. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to format the book in the way that you did? And for people who haven't seen it yet, obviously it's full of a lot of great recipes. You also highlight eight of, can we say your favorite shuks or eight mm-hmm. shuks that you I frequent? think it, it's also favorite, but also kind of important, I think, to give an idea and understanding about what is, because somebody wrote me a talk back or something like that and said, oh, we have farmer markets here too. I'm like... It's different. Yeah. And I how love... It? Can you explain how It's different? totally different. There is no... First is loud. Okay. <laughs> People <right>. screaming. <laughs> yeah. And there is so much vibrant inside. I used to like to just go and shook a comment, happen down just to hear them talking. Yeah. And here are they cursing and now they talk to a lady that just squeeze too much a tomato and he said i will squeeze your boobs like like crazy that was look at it's just funny right it just makes remind me home right <laughs> every time i miss you know i'm home i'm like okay i need to go to shuka karma yeah uh, it's very loud but it's also not just contained some farmers that which i love farmer market here but it's different it's we have souvenir shop we have cheese we have a lot of different produce we have bakeries and cakes and we have uh, clothing. We have spices. Mm-hmm. There is a lot more. You, it's a one-stop shop. Yeah. So you don't need to go to a lot of different places. And then we have another one of the uh, markets in the book. It's Shuk Levinsky. That's another market I grew okay. up because it's mostly, back then, was mostly Iranian. So I used to go to that market with my mom. She used to pick up rice over there. Okay. She used to yeah. go over this big barrel, you know, like a burlap, huge bag and smell the rice to see and check that they're long enough, they liked the very white in colors, the super perfect jasmine rice. And, and that's the place she used to go. And she used to talk in her own mother la- language, you know, so she felt very comfortable there. 
Yeah. Um, and it, did you know you wanted to include that component in the cookbook when you started to write it? Like, it's sort of a travel guide at the same time because you make specific yeah, recommendations. But I, it's, it started very different. It started at the beginning. It was my, it's, I said, okay, I want to, because slowly as I get old, older, <laughs> I eat more vegetable. I okay. still eat meat, of course. I love fish and I love seafood. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I, I eat more vegetable. I cook more vegetable. My daughter became vegetarian. So I, at the beginning, I thought I wanted to do a vegetarian book, but then okay. I realized there was one thing I, think I am is authentic and being a vegetarian old cookbook when I'm still eating meat and it just not feeling right. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of people, I know a lot of chefs that all they do is pork and beef and then they do in a book just for the trend. And it's not right. something I do. I'm not running after trend. I want things that are timeless. Uh, and vegetarian do just vegetarian felt a little bit. Um, I missed something there. And then we come, we came with the idea of shuk because this is the way I grew up. And mm-hmm. also when you go to Israel today, the first things you go in, it's so funny, shuk, it wasn't a touristic place when I grew up. Uh-huh. It's kind of embarrassing to take a tourist to the shuk because you're going to be shocked. Right. Like back in the days, people that go to Israel, they will never step in shuk Carmel. It's right. become a trendy thing now. It's funny. It's funny to see how it's evolved today. And it's so fun. And people like more open up to see the all different things in a shuk. Yeah. Well, it's becoming a touristy thing to do, but also just Israeli um, foods and Israeli ingredients are becoming so trendy in the United States mm-hmm. too. I mean, you, I loved that you had a recipe for crispy cauliflower with bomb. Is it bomba? Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess you can now buy at Trader Joe's. Can you tell us what bomba <laughs> is and the fact that bomba is the reason Israelis doesn't have allergic to peanuts. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Ose. <laughs> I always say that. That's why we don't have a, this is what I, I believe, but maybe I'm wrong. And they're little uh, like, how would so, you describe them? So bamba is, uh, it's, Think Cheetos, uh-huh. okay. but tastier, okay. less messier, <laughs> less orange. Right. So it's, but it's the same, almost it's the same texture. It's a little bit more yellow. It's, it's made from rice and peanuts. So I have a dish that when I opened Barbolonat seven years ago, I decided to take the most iconic ingredient in Israel, a mm-hmm. snack, which is bamba and create it into a cauliflower, crispy, crispy cauliflower. But then, cover the cauliflower with rice butter because bamba is made with rice as well. Okay. And then make, uh, and then I made a tahini, peanuts tahini. So kind of have a, like for, for me, food is a lot of, there is a lot of thought into every dish. Yeah. About the circle, about the ingredients, about how you combine them, how we can use a lot of different things to make one whole soulful so you, we mentioned vegetables. You said you eat a lot of vegetables, more vegetables than you ever have. Um, you also say that maybe cauliflower is taking over eggplants as like the reigning vegetable. I think this year is going to be the cabbage. Oh, the cabbage. I, I think that's what's going to happen. I think cabbage. And I think uh, there is few other vegetables that need to shine now. But cauliflower became such a huge thing in New York and all around the country. Yeah. And I remember when I opened uh, Balabusta 10 years ago, I got dozen, if not so many people that said they hate cauliflower before. They grew up right. as American right. with boiled cauliflower uh-huh. that smelled pretty bad. 
And, <laughs> and they, they never liked it. And I understand, but yeah. cauliflower is, if you know how to use it, it's delicious. Right. Delicious. And vegetable. you sort of jumped on the whole roasted cauliflower trend with your own take. You, you actually wrap it and put it in coals. Yes. So I personally don't like the all roasted cauliflower. Okay. No. I feel like there is not enough. Cre- I like texture in my yeah. food, a lot of texture. So for me, I rather to have the small pieces. Right. Um, I like the idea of cauliflower because you use everything and I'm really into use every scrap of the food. Uh, but I always feel that the inside of the cauliflower will never be tasted. You don't mm. have enough, you know, it's just blend. Sure. So the only way I want to do all cauliflower is when I do barbecue outdoor. Uh-huh. And I thought it's like a fast way instead of to use also the, gr- the oven inside is like when you use the grill outside, you just wrap it with aluminum foil, put a lot of flavor, whatever you want. You can put herbs and olive oil and garlic, mustard right. seeds. You can play a little bit of honey, salt. You can play with it. Just wrap it really well and put it with the charcoal. And then after half an hour, you take it and you have this smoky, beautiful, yeah. and now it's soft. Yeah. And delicious. So we, we've talked a lot about how food played a role in your life when you were growing up. Were cookbooks a thing that were around? When did you sort of first start to <laughs> turn to cookbooks or have cookbooks of your own? Barely can talk. What do you talk about? Reading. <laughs> um, no, I don't think my mom have even one cookbook. Uh-huh, right. There is no cookbook. Yeah. When I grew up. Yeah. And I always used to say also in my Balabusta cookbook before that we cook from intuition and guts. There is no recipes to follow or, or like books. Like it's tradition and heritage and learning from grandma to grandma. And this is how I learn how to cook. Yeah. It's not my mom said, Oh, follow this recipe today. We're going to. Right. No. Right. I need to watch her and it's never the same. And I always get upset, but I did exactly what you told me. Why it's not taste <laughs> as good. So it's always like that. And there is, it's interesting because until today there is like some memory, you know, memory come a lot from smells uh-huh. for me, but there is some memory of some dishes that I still try to make and I can reach exact as my grandma. Yeah. One day I will. Yeah. Keep trying. Yeah, yeah. I will. But you think cookbooks are important? You think cookbooks have an important role in uh- our... I love cookbooks. I have tons of cookbooks at home today and I yeah. get a lot of inspiring, see different, um, everybody look at it in a different, there's so many Israeli cookbook today and it's super interesting for me to see it because a lot of them is for people that realize about Israeli cooking much later in life. Mm. And they also come from very different culture than me. So it's interesting to see how they approach Kube or Iraqi food, you know? Right. Um, I th- I think it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And I love a lot of different culture beside Israeli cuisine that I have a lot of different cookbook. Yeah. One thing I love about you is that you also do stand-up comedy. We have One thing there is many things. There's many things. <laughs> <laughs> um we've established that you're you're quite funny. <laughs> How did you get into stand-up comedy? You're working as a chef, you're writing cookbooks and now you're you're training and performing. I think you're even you performed at the Comedy Cellar? I did yeah. twice. What was that like? I almost shit my pants. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. How did you decide to go into stand-up comedy as a, a side I, hobby? This is, there's two things I like in life. There is three. The third I can mention in a radio show. But there's two <laughs> things I like in life is comedy and food. Uh-huh. Food come first. And that's what I watch at home. When my husband is on the news, I'm like, why? Let's watch something funny. 
Yeah. It's already everything around is so heavy. Right. I want something light and funny. Right. And I'm following comedian for years, a lot of them. And I'm going to comedy sellers for since I got to the state, like every few weeks, I want to go and see a show and see what's going on. Um, and I like to laugh. I think, I think as Israeli as well, that this is something we have. It's super interesting that we don't have only cows. We don't, uh, afraid we like, I think in America, we also worried all the time not to offend each other. So we always walk on eggshells and Israeli as rude and obnoxious they can be. It's funny. Like they will (laughs) say whatever it's like all the way. And I like that. And, and comedies give me another tool and maybe some, I don't know, to be on a stage and say what I really want to say without to be scared or I offended him. So I really, really enjoy it. Yeah. That's it's the awesome. best. Yeah. <laughs> well, we always end with a little game. So let's, let's turn to that now. So I want to go back to your days of driving around Germany in an RV where yeah. you're cooking whatever you can find. And we're going to, we've got four decks of cards next to you. The, their secret ingredients, which are, which is that stack and is sort of more obscure ingredients. The others are sort of more pantry staples. So traditional vegetables or proteins. So we're going to pretend you're driving somewhere in your RV mm-hmm. and you stopped and there was a little basket of goods waiting for you that you can cook with. And what's in that basket is whatever you're going to draw right now. So you can so draw any combination anything. of them, however many you want. And so then I, need I wanna... to take one, 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 one. Yeah, if you want to, or you can take, yeah, let's, maybe let's do a, one of each. And then I want to know what you would make if your basket had those four things. Damn it. Okay, what do you have? Gummy bears. No, I don't want gummy <laughs> bears. Ah, uh, lamb. I, I, I'm giving that to you. Thank you. <laughs> bad for your teeth. Chive. Oh, my husband going to love that. He okay. always gets chive. I don't know why. And look what I got. Cauliflower. Oh, cauliflower. So I need to make a food now? Yeah, so what, so that's what's in your basket. And people are coming to you and saying they're hungry. What are we so gonna make? this is what we're making. We're taking the cauliflower, we put it in a roboku and we make a couscous out of it. Okay. We're going to steam it exactly like a uh, samolina, like uh-huh. a real couscous. Right. So we have the kind of the carb, but it's not carb. So we're right. staying healthy and skinny. Right. Uh, <laughs> then we're going to take the chive and we're going to grind it and make a pesto with pine nuts okay. and some za'atar and some olive oil and garlic. And then we rub the lamb. It's a lamb chop. And then we're going to grill it. Okay. Um, the gummy bears, you can, I can get it to my kids and said, it's the only <laughs> time you can have this sweet. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's great. Let's do one more. <laughs> All right. Pork, nutmeg, asparagus. I love asparagus. Okay. So what do we That's have in the That's harder. You see, I have asparagus, nutmeg. Okay. Dragon fruit is also not so tasty. Mm. I know. It's pretty though. Yeah, it is pretty. And pork. Okay. Um, okay. What do we do with the pork? And this is, it's just say pork, but it's look like pork chop. And I can do pork, but pork chop always too dry for me. I never understand that. Okay. Um, so I need to marinate the pork for a long, long time with some dragon fruit and I will mix the dragon fruit and make a marinade with that and pineapple and some garlic and some herbs and keep the pork chop inside. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, so the dragon fruit just come disappear a little bit. Right. So tasty. And then the asparagus, I'm going to grill them. I'm going to cover them with, or just like make a bunch with, uh, scallions. Uh-huh. And I will make some preserved lemon yogurt sauce on top of it. Delicious. Um, together with some nutmeg. 
Perfect. So I just go and I put some nutmeg in a preserved lemon. Yeah. Awesome. You going to eat that? I would love to eat that. Really? That sounds delicious. All right. Yeah, good. I'd try it. If you're cooking this RV <laughs> meal for me, it sounds that, decadent. Just be sure this never, <laughs> this kind of food, <laughs> you will get more canned food than. Yeah, right. Yeah, those are, those are lucky baskets so, to discover on the road. No, but one time happened in, in Germany that I went to the grocery and I went to see a chicken, I need to cook chicken for some friends. Okay. So I got, and it says super chicken. I thought it means super chicken. I'm like, <laughs> this would be the best chicken ever. It was a soup chicken. That's mean it's f- uh, full of fat. So I cook it and just the fat is draining. Right. And I'm like, why it's so oily? This is not what I meant. It's <laughs> <Right. laughs> like last in translation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, this was so much fun. Thank you, Enoch, for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Anat Edmoni's Shuk, for the green shakshuka with charred kale, spinach, and feta, and for the spicy fish in cherry tomato and harissa sauce. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>